For those of you who haven't met me, my name's uh, Matthew. Uh, welcome to uh, New Life Anglican Church. I'm the associate pastor here. I'm very glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at a couple of bits of the book of Isaiah. We've been doing a series on the book of Isaiah, and we're just looking at a couple of random passages uh, from it, on, uh, um, on really on a theme. Um, my goal this morning is, um, is very simple, but it's kind of really, really ambitious. Um, it's, it's very simple. I just want you to know how big God is this morning. That's it. I want you to know how big God is. Uh, big's the wrong word. God's actually beyond big. He's beyond time and space entirely. It's kind of just an analogy word. It's, he's outside time and space. Um, but um, it's something I can't actually achieve, <laughs> communicating to you how big God is. Um, we can't conceive of it. Um, I am standing here acutely aware of how I can't achieve this task because I can't help you conceive this. We desperately need to ask God's help uh, to help, uh, to ask him uh, to give us a better insight into who he is and what he's like and I suppose just the vastness of who he is uh, and, and how he rules things. So uh, would you uh, begin today with me by praying and asking for his help as we uh, look at his word today, uh, please. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are a God who, uh, whilst you are so uh, big and vast, uh, that you want to be known uh, and that you, yeah, you offer yourself to us in prayer and that you make yourself available to us. We want to pray that this time would be a time where we would come to have a great deal of insight into your godness, your immensity, your power and into your ways that we want to acknowledge with humility that are far beyond us but we want to have greater insight into them. So please would you grant that insight to us today and please would you grant us humility to us today that even as we would see more of you today, uh, we would not uh, see that with arrogance or pridefulness but we would uh, see it with greater worship and greater, greater, uh, yeah, greater humility before you as our God and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the book of Isaiah um, we've been looking at um, has some of the really strongest statements in the entire Bible about the uniqueness of who God is. Um, it's often made like in comparison to some of the like false idols of the, the nations around them. Um, if you ever look for sarcasm in the Bible, it's in the book of Isaiah. Basically just going, man, those idols are dumb. You can find sarcasm in the book of Isaiah. It's, it's dripping with it. Um, that's, that's for another, another sermon. But, <clears throat> but the God of Isaiah, the God of Israel, is absolutely unique. He's the God who made the universe. And so we've called the series that we've been preaching through the unstoppable plans of the holy God. Because this is the God who has plans that can't be stopped. He doesn't have opponents who can actually get in the way and cause any real obstacles that can stop God's plans happening. They can't pose a real threat. God's plans will happen one way or another. And he's a holy God. He's the God who's absolutely pure and righteous. He's absolutely pure and righteous. He does no wrong. And there's no limitations on him. He's beyond time and space. He's a God without comparison. 
And so in Isaiah chapter 40 there, from verse 12, we read just these... You've got a Bible there. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I think you'll find it helpful to have the, the thing in front of you. Page 719, you know, your Bible there. Um, and I'm looking at chapter 40, verse 12. If you hear a few weeks ago, we heard um, the beginning of chapter 40, and it, it basically announces the gospel. The gospel is the message that God is coming to save his people. Um, and you think, well, what sort of God is capable of saving his people? And so uh, up to verse 11 is the message of the gospel, God's coming to save his people. From verse 12 you go, well, he's the kind of God who can save his people, the awesome God, this kind of power who can save his people. Verse 12, have a look what it says. Um, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on a scales or the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his, as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? Or who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Friends, when we engage with the God of the Bible... We're dealing with a being who quite simply has comprehensive mastery of everything that exists. Uh, I can barely express it. You certainly cannot comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. We can't imagine it. He's absolutely unique. And so verse 25, come down to verse 25, God says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. There's God's favourite title in the book of Isaiah, the Holy One. And then there's his intimate creating, sustaining the whole universe, detail by detail. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things and brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? It's a great picture, isn't it? You see the extent of the universe and it's a picture of God having like a name for each star everywhere. He has an intimate relationship with each object in the universe, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The extent of the entire creative order, God's got an intimate relationship with every single thing. But God's far, far more immense than that. Today I want to introduce you to a um, kind of a theology word, um, which uh, is very, very important, but often gets misused, unfortunately. Um, It's the idea of mystery. Um, which will come up, I think. Good. Um, God is mysterious, um, which means he's beyond understanding. Um, Saying God's mysterious, um, it might sound like I'm saying God is weird or God acts in random ways or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm not saying that God's negative at all. I'm just saying God's beyond human understanding. Human beings are utterly incapable of fully... Have I gone blank? No. Incapable of fully grasping who God is. That's what it means. God's mysterious. He's beyond what my brain can handle. There's always stuff about God beyond what I'm capable of understanding. God's being, thought, and action beyond my brain. How far? Infinitely beyond. There's always more beyond my brain, your brain, to God. And that means we need to be really, really humble when it comes to trying to understand God and his ways really humble. 
that's actually led some people, um, really unfortunately, to some traditions to go, well, you can't actually know anything about God at all because, you know, our language is like infinitely inferior to God and so you can't actually say anything about God at all. And that's, that's unfortunate because it's not true. Here's the, here's the miracle. God actually condescends to our level. He's able in his power to write in human words to come down to our level like a parent to a child, I suppose. Come down to our level, except it's a bit far bigger gap than that. He condescends in order to come down to our level to speak and come to relationship with us. He speaks in human words, in human languages. Now, here's the point that I, uh, I, want, to, I, I want you to get right here. It's going to be a very, very important point for today. In the Bible... God tells us some things that are insights into mysteries that are well beyond us and that human logic can't unravel. Now, remember what a mystery is. A mystery is a thing the human understanding can't follow the logic through of, right? It's something that you can't go this, therefore this, therefore this. Like, I can't, I can't understand how it works, okay? In the Bible, God gives us some insights, some like, here's, here's an insight into a mystery, I can't tell you more than that because you can't actually understand more than that. I'm just going to give you a kind of little insight into a mystery. You can listen in on some God stuff that your own human mind isn't naturally fit for. It's quite an extraordinary thing. We've actually confessed as much already today. We confess the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is full of mysteries. (laughs) The Nicene Creed confessed several paradoxes, several mysteries about the Christian faith. The Trinity, right? What did we confess about God? I believe in one God. Okay, one God. Now count. The Father, the the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, of one being with the Father. It sounds like there's a second God now, doesn't it? But it's still said there's one God, the Holy Spirit, who's worshipped with the Father and the Son. Hey, Christian, how many gods have you got? I've got one God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible's given us an insight into who God is. It says there's one God but there's three persons who are God. And you go, I don't know how that works. I understand that it's the case. I worship one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I understand it's the case. I worship this God. I relate to this God. I don't need to understand the theory of how it all maps out, how it all joins up. I don't need to understand the mystery. I just need to relate to this God. Or Jesus, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Creed said that as well. Um, that time. <laughs> um, have a look what it said about Jesus. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father. And you, when you say the Creed, sometimes you get confused by why does it say all this stuff here? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. It says all this stuff about Jesus, about his, his deity, like his godness, right? And you, you wonder why it just doesn't say... Um, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, fully God, right? The reason it says all that stuff is because people are going, oh, maybe he's like semi-God, maybe God from God, part God. And it's just, this it keeps on going, no, 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 light from God. Whatever God is, whatever God the Father is, Jesus is that as well. He's fully God. He's fully God. He's fully God. Whatever words you want to put to it, he's fully God. And so it's saying 100% God, and then it goes on to say, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. He became truly human. And so you've got Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is 100% God and 100% human being. 
at the center of the Christian faith, you have a, a man who is completely God and completely man. And again, you're going, my head can't cope with that, like just the maths of it or whatever you want to call it. I understand that is the case. Logically, I can't quite figure it out. That, that's okay, I can cope with that. But do you, do you see how it's so central to the Christian faith that God has given me in the Bible an insight into a mystery, something that his brain can figure out, but my can't. Now, I, I don't believe this just because my head likes conundrums. The reason I believe this is because this is the Jesus I meet in the Bible. This is the God I meet in the Bible. And because God in his condescension has come down and given us insights into who he is. Insights into mysteries that to work it out is beyond us. But that's who he is. And in his great generosity he has given us insights into who he is. Does that kind of make sense? It's, we don't have to understand everything. He's given us deep insights into deep things that are beyond us. It's also true about how he governs history, as we'll see in a minute. But here's an important to- uh, principle about how we approach some of these hard topics. Let me just show you this verse. This is very, very important. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, um, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belongs to us and our children forever. Um, I've said there's a, like a, an in-principle limit to how much we can understand God, because God's a mystery. Like God is beyond our understanding. There's more to God than we can understand, because he's God and we're human. Um, there's also a limit, because God doesn't tell us everything, because God doesn't have to. He tells us what he chooses to tell us, and we can't figure stuff out that he chooses not to tell us. And we shouldn't speculate, because God tells us things and chooses not, what, not to tell us, because... He's decided not to tell us. And so there's a lot of topics where you go, God has told us this much and we must not speculate further because the Bible has not told us further. And that becomes very important when it gets to topics that, well, you want to know more and God, for our good, has not told us more. But don't forget the part of this verse, I should point to the screen, the part of this verse that's really exciting. The things revealed to us, the things God has told to us for our good belong to us and to our children forever. The things God has told us are ours to own and treasure and think through and to relate to him on the basis of. He's given us a Bible. God's given us such wonderful treasures, such insight into who he is, to know him and to love him. Anyway, let's get into um, what, what we want to think about with um, God's ways. I want to look about, uh, have a think about how God uh, carries out his plan um, in the book of Isaiah. Okay. <laughs> um, if you've been following our, our plan in the book of Isaiah, you'll know that um, we've been talking about the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon featured. They've been the bad guys um, <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, the ancient Near East basically um, had one superpower at a time that dominated. Um, first it was Assyria, then it was Babylon, and then it became Persia. Um, which is mentioned in our second Bible reading. Um, let me show you on the slides basically what happened, and then let me tell you what God had to do with it, all right? Because at first, just on the, the surface, it looks like God had nothing to do with it. Um, good. There's a map. You can basically see Assyria is capital there in the top corner. There's ba- the city of Babylon. It's capital, obviously, of its empire. You can see the kingdoms of Israel, North, and Judah on the map there. Ignore Egypt. They're not actually that important to this story. 
um, this particular story. They're important to other stories. Um, um, so the kingdom of Assyria dominated absolutely everything in the 8th century BC. Um, in 722 they, BC, they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They took them off into slavery and um, the northern kingdom um, went into exile and dispersed as a people group and they basically lost their identity and they disappeared from history. Um, they failed to, the Assyrians failed to conquer Judah very strangely. Um, not strangely if you read the Bible, but <laughs> um, they, they failed to conquer Judah. Um, but the northern kingdom of Israel went away. Um, the kingdom of Babylon then dominated everything from 7th to the 6th century BC. Then in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered Judah and took them off to slavery um, into Babylon. Babylon had a series of inept rulers who set themselves up, uh, set up for King Cyrus of Persia to come conquer them. So you got a Persian flag come along. Um, and King Cyrus decided that he would uh, let indigenous people kind of return to their, their homelands, which meant that uh, the Jews got to return to Judah to try and rebuild everything. Um, and so they went back to uh, Judah to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple and its towns and that kind of thing. Um, on the surface... It kind of looks like God's people are just like thrown around by the forces of history and powerful kings and rulers and that sort of thing. Um, in actual fact, Israel's God determined exactly how that all turned out. Early in Isaiah, we read, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will happen. Why did it happen that way? Well, the northern kingdom of Israel went into slavery because they worshipped false gods. God warned them. They refused to repent. And so God sent, uh, sent the Assyrian army to capture them. The Bible says God used the Assyrian empire as his tool, his instrument of judgment against them in a similar way that I might use a shovel to dig a hole. Have a look at um, what this text here says. We're going to have a careful think about this because this is how God's we're going to think about God's sovereignty. We think about our mystery, our theme of mystery. Um, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, this instrument, um, in, whom, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I sent him against a godless nation, that's Israel, the northern kingdom. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy to put an end to many nations. We understand the concept of an instrument. Uh, I have a hammer. I'm a human. I can use instruments. This is a hammer. It's an instrument. One of the things that separates animals from humans, humans from animals, is we can use tools. I can use a tool to do things. I'd use it to break something on stage, but basically everything on stage of value is mine, so I'm not going to break something on stage. Um, of course, the thing is, I can only use things that are inanimate objects as tools. Like, God can use things that are animate objects, things with wills and minds uh, as, as tools. Um, one of the things that separates God's, God from human beings is God can use anything to achieve his will. He can use anything as a tool, as an instrument. Anything. He can use people to achieve his will without reducing them to robots and without manipulating them into kind of the, in kind of the simplistic ways we might worry about. We're dealing with a God whose ways are beyond our comprehension. The Assyrians were God's instrument. They were his tool to do his will. 
Let me make it harder for you to accept. Not only were the Assyrians the instrument of God's judgment by conquering Israel, they were guilty for their actions. Because they did it with bad intentions. And God himself remained righteous, and they were guilty for their actions, and God was not. If I break something with a hammer, I can't blame the hammer. Yeah, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, the, the logic of it's pretty straightforward, but of course, the hammer doesn't have a will of its own. It doesn't have a mind of its own. We're just talking about an inanimate object that's the expression of my will, the expression of my mind, that kind of thing. We're talking about a God that can use people that can have a will of their own, that can have minds of their own, that can do things of their own, and he can use them to achieve his purposes. And so the passage, see what the passage says? It says, the Assyrians are going to do my will, but woe to those Assyrians who go to do my will. Because they go to do my will with bad intentions, to seize and loot, to destroy nations. It's actually really important. God can use people. God isn't limited to using people who are willingly obeying him, do you realise? It's really important. Do you know God's plan was for Jesus to die for the sins of the world? People killed Jesus and were guilty for killing Jesus. It's very important that Jesus died for the sins of the world. God couldn't have planned that unless he could use people who are evil. God is in control of everything. We're talking about God who is far beyond us, who can do things we can't work out how you can do that. Now that might make you quite uncomfortable. You think wait a minute, those Assyrians, that seems really unfair. But No, no, slow down. God didn't manipulate anybody. I'm not saying that. God didn't get the Assyrians to do anything they didn't want to do. They sinned. They chose to sin. And God punished them for their sin. But the Assyrian sin was also God's chosen instrument to perform his judgment on his people. It takes a great deal of humility to realise that God is God and we're smaller than ants. We're talking about an infinite difference in scale of being. I'd wager it's impossible for us to work out in a way that we're completely comfortable with, it, with perhaps. But as I said, it's a mystery. We're talking about a God who can do things that are beyond us, but we're given precious insights because we've got a God who rules the world, who rules everything. The same thing's true of how he, uh, what, what happened with Babylon. Judah was conquered by Babylon. They refused to heed the example of the northern brethren and uh, were conquered and uh, went, into, um, went into exile. And um, they trusted the promises of God, many of them, and waited If you turn to Isaiah chapter 45, we'll be there in just a moment. A second reading. How did did Judah get back to the promised land? Not in the way they expected. Judah expected that a Messiah would get them back. Judah was ruled by a king called a Messiah or a Christ, an anointed one, a shepherd, the great conquering king who would destroy their enemies, defeat their enemies. There was no great Messiah there. God, does, God can use anybody to achieve his purposes. Um, 
if you, we're just going to have a look at chapter 44, sorry, the end of chapter 44 on page 726. Um, and you will read God using somebody to achieve his plan that's far more shocking than what he did with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, at least to a, a Jewish mindset. Um, listen to how Messiah, shepherd, um, defeating enemy stuff is, is applied to Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, uh, instead of the king of Israel. Um, chapter 44, 28 says, um, God says of Cyrus, this is a foreign king, he is my shepherd and I'll accomplish all I please. He will say to Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. This is Cyrus, to Cyrus, to whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, I will level the mountains, I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron and so on. Did did you catch it? There isn't an Israelite Messiah there ready to save God's people. So God is going to equip a Persian to do the job (laughs) because God can use anyone to achieve his will. And have a look at verse 5. I'm the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, although you have not acknowledged me. He can even use people that don't acknowledge his name. It's extraordinary. Let me show you something. This thing here is uh, on the screen is called the Cyrus Cylinder. This is King Cyrus's account of what happened. Um, it's in the British Museum where good, all good ancient artefacts are stored. Um, it says all the stuff that the Bible says, um, except he says that King, uh, sorry, that the uh, Babylonian god Marduk empowered him to do it. As Isaiah says, Cyrus doesn't acknowledge him, but God can use anyone, even somebody who doesn't acknowledge his name, to do His will. He isn't limited to using willing, godly people to do His will. Now. We've seen in a bunch of ways God's mysterious is beyond a human understanding. Let me show you a couple of texts here about how God's understanding is beyond ours. Here's where I went ahead to finish. God's understanding, no one can fathom. You would have heard this last week if you were here um, when Stuart preached. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What, it, what that means is God's mind is more than just a massive supercomputer. Um, that is, um, for us to um, be able to think like God, it isn't just a matter of throwing more processing power in. in, in. It's actually a different level plane of thinking. God's thinking is beyond our comprehension. You can never get there. God is on a different level of existence than us. It means we finite human beings need to be very, very careful and very, very humble when it comes to demanding answers from God. Firstly, because he knows what he's doing. Secondly, because the secret things belong to the Lord, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. Thirdly, because there's a whole lot of stuff that we simply aren't capable of beginning to understand. A whole lot of stuff. Friends, something that concerns me sometimes, and I want you to think about this, um, Christian people particularly, as you engage with life, 
and how you, you engage with issues and, and, and think about your relationship with God. Something that we need to think about is, I think sometimes we talk about God too much as if we're capable of thinking through issues at his level. And we're not. We need to think about that, I think, sometimes. Because we're not. And we need to recognise our, rela- our relation next to him, well, under him, is what I mean to say. Let me give you an illustration that helps me. Um, I have three kids. Um, they're all homesick at the moment. Happy Father's Day. It is actually Happy Father's Day because my lovely wife is looking after them. My middle son, Toby, knows how to express himself. Um, if Toby knows best, Toby always knows best, he tells me. Um, it is crazy how insightful Toby thinks he often is. Um, to- one of Toby's very first words when he was about one year old was the word stuck. Toby would tell me in a particular situation, um, stuck pretty regularly, he would be in this particular situation, and he would t- yell, stuck, and he'd be pretty angry and upset with me, stuck. And he'd sit there, and at Toby's level of understanding, it was all very simple. He was stuck, he wanted to be unstuck, and if I didn't unstuck him, I was an evil, evil father. It was all very, very simple. Um, I was irrational, illogical, and immoral if I didn't help him out. Here's what happened regularly. I'll tell you how bad a father I am. I did not unstuck him. Never. Not once. You know what else? I didn't even give him an explanation why. Not once. The reason why was because my thoughts were higher than his thoughts. Not higher than heaven, higher than his thoughts, but they were much higher than his thoughts because the kind of thoughts and reasoning necessary for him to understand why he was stuck were reasonings that a one-year-old was simply not capable of entering into. However, you're all capable of entering into it, so I'll tell you. It's called a seatbelt. It's pretty simple, right? Because you're all capable of entering into the logic of it, and it's not a mystery to you. It's a mystery to him. You understand the concept of mystery. It's a mystery to him. That's what mystery is. Mystery to him is a child with two-word vocabulary is the mechanics of how seatbelts work and why there's laws for them and what happens in a car accident to unstuck children and things like that. If I tried to explain all that to him, what's his counter-argument going to be? Stuck. Yeah. (laughs) The issue is a mystery to Toby. Yeah? It's impenetrable. It's incomprehensible. He can't enter into it. Friends, the God of the Bible condescends a whole lot further than that with us. A whole lot further than that. I didn't give my one-year-old Toby a rational explanation for his trouble, but I didn't ignore him either. Do you know what I did? I comforted him. The thing he needed wasn't a better answer. The thing he needed was for his father to comfort him. Isn't that right? Do you know the only thing in the world better than having a God whose ways and thoughts 
are so far beyond us that we can't imagine. Having that God as your father. That's what Christianity is about. God sent his son into the world so that we could be adopted into that God's family. Call that God father. That's pretty much what I'd like you to know on Father's Day. The best thing my one-year-old son could learn to do was to trust his dad with things that are far, far beyond him. And the best thing we can do is to come to know that God as Father through Jesus and then come to know through experience to trust that Father with things that are far beyond us. Day by day, issue by issue. Let's pray. A great and incomprehensible God who is far beyond us our loving Father. We thank you that you condescend so very, very far to enter into relationship with us. We thank you for the precious insights that you give us in your word into things that are far, far beyond us. We pray that uh, you would help us to uh, engage with them in a way that is uh, productive and helpful and uh, where they're distressing to, uh, to, to continue to engage with them in a direction that would be helpful and to engage with the questions in a way that would be helpful. We want to praise you, Father, that you are in control and that you are a good and loving Father and that you are trustworthy. And we pray that you would help us to treat you that way. In Jesus' name, amen.